Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses H.P. Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one's going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are discussing Algernon Blackwood's occult detective novella, A Psychical Invasion, which we recapped last time. Before we get into it, though, and, and there really is going to be a lot to discuss, I think, as we hinted at last time, we want to talk about some other new Patreon goals that we've added based on some more feedback that we've gotten from current supporters. Uh, so what we've done is we've decided to offer some exclusive episodes devoted to speculative fiction books, speculative fiction novels, really, I should say, that are important, that are, are relevant to the free shows that we do, like this one, like Elder Sign. And so uh, we had a Patreon vote to pick which novels those would be. Yeah. And there were a bunch of great novels on the list. For those of you who aren't patron supporters, I'm going to just tell you what the books are. The first one was The Nightland by William Hope Hodgson. Yeah, this one makes obvious sense. I mean, you know, for the audience here on Elder Sign, Hodgson at this point, right, is tied with Lovecraft for the writer with the most stories here. The, and The Nightland is often considered as one of his two masterpiece novels. I think The House on the Borderland is the, the other one. But The Nightland, this is in the dying earth tradition of stories. And of course, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we eventually will be gearing up to cover his dying earth story, the, the book of the new sun. So this seemed like a perfect candidate to throw on the ballot here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we also had The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Right. This is another one that's really connected to Gene Wolfe. In fact, uh, you and I are really kind of woefully ignorant of Ray Bradbury. We, we've, we've done some work to, to correct that, including covering the Velt here on Elder Sign. But The Martian Chronicles came up in a big way on the Gene Wolfe forum when we were wrapping up his novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And it turned out that probably we left some things on the table there because we just don't know the Martian Chronicles. So again, this just seemed like a no-brainer to throw on here. Many is the time I'm reading a work of fiction uh, that Wolf may have come across or read while he's been working on Fifth Head of Cerberus or uh, some of his novellas like For Lesson and thought, ah, man, like we, <laughs> there's so much more here. Um, so yeah, absolutely great choice. There's also The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Right. This is this is Gene Wolfe's favorite novel. So that's the connection there. But of course, this is one of the masterpieces of of weird fiction. I mean, this is the archetype, I think, really, of the, the mad scientist story. And we've done a number of mad scientist stories here on Elder Sign as well, including Purity by Ligotti. We've done From Beyond by Lovecraft. We're going to keep doing mad scientist stories. So this seems like a good one to get under our belts as well. The next one on the list was The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. We've talked about this one a lot on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Yeah, we have, right? Because Chesterton is is absolutely huge for Gene Wolfe, both as a, as a fiction writer. I mean, Chesterton as a fiction writer, but also Chesterton as a, a Christian thinker. Chesterton also just looms large over Neil Gaiman's work as well, and especially the the Sandman. In fact, as we're recording this episode, Brent and I are in the segment of the Sandman where G.K. Chesterton is just a character in the Sandman uh, for some reason, somehow. So we definitely wanted to put some Chesterton on the ballot. Yeah. And The Man Who Was Thursday is certainly one of Chesterton's most enduring works, probably outside of the Father Brown mysteries. So uh, yeah, it's a major book that's influenced a lot of writers who came after him. And finally on the list, we have Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Yeah, this one's kind of the outlier on the list in the sense that it was written during our lifetimes, that this is what amounts to a, a contemporary work. But it does a lot of the things that we really do here on the network, which is to say, you know, look at, at literary uh, illusions and, and look at interesting craft as, as well. I mean, Hyperion is 
is a science fiction retelling of of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And so that seemed like a perfect thing for you and I to talk about. And of course, Dan Simmons is also a fantastic weird fiction writer. I was actually thinking about him when we did The Goddess of Death recently because he's got a novel called uh, Song of Kali. Uh, we'll eventually get some of his horror short stories here on Elder Sign as well, I'm sure. Yeah, Song of Kali is really great. It's the only... Uh kind of official horror novel by Dan Simmons I've read, and I really enjoyed it. It does have some chilling, chilling moments. It's great stuff. So what we ended up doing here, we, we put these on a ballot, and then we took two of them. We took the, the top two, and I have to say, it was very close. In fact, Brandon, I don't think you actually know the results here, so I'm, I guess I'm revealing this to you as well. It was very close, at least at the at the top. It was very close. But even though we do a ton of Hodgson on the show, the Nightland actually received barely any support here. This this came in dead last. Going up the list, uh, Hyperion and the Martian Chronicles, they tied, but they were still actually about five votes behind the second winner. And that second winner, so this is one that we'll put as kind of a further off goal. This was the man who was Thursday. This is the, the G.K. Chesterton. And so what that means is that winning this vote and going in as our new $600 goal is Gene Wolfe's favorite novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. I couldn't be more excited about this. I've been thinking about this novel a lot and kind of picking it up and reading it for myself. I've read H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine and The Invisible Man. We've covered an H.G. Wells story on the podcast. H.G. Wells was one of my grandfather's favorite writers as well, uh, though he never really had much of H.G. Wells' science fiction around his house. He had uh, the H.G. Wells' History of the World, which I kind of thumbed through every once in a while <laughs> as a kid in his study. Uh, and I just couldn't be more pleased that this is the choice for the $600 goal. I cannot wait till we hit that goal and are able to cover this novel. Yeah, and I don't think it will actually be that long before we can do that because we're not really that far off from hitting this goal. And I mean, if everyone listening pledged their support, even just at our lowest level, we'd hit that goal tomorrow. In fact, we would hit a lot of other goals beyond that and suddenly have a ridiculous amount of work to do. I mean, I don't think we would mind doing that, but it would be a ridiculous amount of work if everyone did that. But, you know, please do that. And I should say, too, that one of those other goals is for Brent and I to do something similar. We're going to cover the first volume of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. I don't remember what dollar amount that was. It's a little bit beyond the $600 one, though. Alan Moore, of course, right? He's a huge force in weird fiction in both prose and comics. Swamp Thing is the foundation of the Sandman, really, as well. So, you know, if we're trying to ground ourselves in more context for the, the main, you know, free public shows that we do, this is one that just made made simple sense for us. So uh, that's on there as well. So we hope this will entice you to, to check it out. We would love to do all of these these books for you, as well as all the other, other goals that we've got. It would be amazing stuff. We just love doing these shows and your support makes it possible for us to do them and to do more. But I think it is time now to get to today's episode, get to our discussion. So Brandon, what uh, what do you want to talk about first? Is it, uh, is it cats or is it dogs? <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about cats and dogs. Don't worry about that. For all the listeners who are here, who are here for Glenn and I's uh, vet veterinarian asides, <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be getting into that a little bit, and that's going to be actually caught up in the in this in the writing craft and story elements portion of our discussion. As I said in the last episode, to close us out, this really is a very complete story. There's not a lot left hanging. Uh, there's not really any loose threads. There aren't really any 
puzzles or mysteries within the text itself. Most of this comes from outside the text, from our own baggage as readers that we bring to the text. So the two most interesting things to me in this story, or the, the, what this story really has going for it, are the writing craft and story elements that Algernon Blackwood is engaging with, and the way that metaphysics and ethics have real interplay in the character of John Silence, and maybe even in, in Blackwood's own mind as well. That's a kind of a big conversation, uh, maybe a challenging one. So I think we'd, I think we'd do well to start with talking about storycraft, um, and, and that's because in our recap episode, we mentioned this story's connection to two other stories that we've covered in the podcast, and it actually connects to many more than just two stories that we've covered in the podcast. But Glenn, I just want to start by getting your thoughts on how you think this story works as an early example of urban fantasy, maybe by comparing it to uh, William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki story we covered, which was The Haunted Jarvie. And then I want to talk about how it stacks up as a weird fiction story, a la From Beyond by H.P. Lovecraft. So first thing, what elements do you really see in common? Uh, We'll start with The Haunted Jarvie and urban fantasy between these stories, do you think Hodgson is taking anything from John Silence and Algernon Blackwood? Or do you think it's more likely that both Algernon Blackwood and William Hope Hodgson are iterating on a tradition or maybe two traditions that already exist, which is the Edwardian ghost story and the detective fiction of Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, the question of their relationship is, is I think, a really interesting one. They're contemporaries. They are writing very similar things. Certainly, you know, we think of them as being extremely similar and, and you know, certainly being well within the, the wheelhouse, well within the, the purview of this show. But I don't know if they really knew each other personally. That probably is not the case. And I also don't know if they knew each other's work at all. I don't even really know what is the material that we might have for scholarship on Blackwood and Hodgson. I don't know if we have letters, if we have letter collections that have survived from them the way that, you know, I know that we do for for Lovecraft and Howard and Smith and so on. I have no idea about that. We don't really tend to see very much like that in the the apparatus when we're reading these books, so I suspect probably not. So I don't know that we'd ever really be able to know for sure that they were reading each other's works. But even if they are reading each other's works and are responding to each other, they are both still also responding to this, this rich tradition of detective fiction. And certainly in this case... I, in this story, I would say that the, the response is definitely towards towards Holmes, towards Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, we might go revisit Karnacki. I mean, we will revisit Karnacki at some point, and we might start thinking then about a debt he might owe to John Silence at that point. But certainly the debt doesn't go the other way. I mean, just terms of publishing chronology. But the big thing here is that I see Blackwood really engaging with Holmes as a type of detective, his methodology, his disposition as well. But also, I think, engaging with uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as a persona as a, a sort of personality within well really kind of a global personality at this point as as a writer uh, but as someone who was interested in the occult and had real serious business views uh, about it yeah i mean for those who are unaware uh sir arthur conan doyle was a big participator in the spiritualism craze that took place at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the early 20th century this was a really a cultural fad the the sort of invasion of psychics and mediums and clairvoyance and and Eric Mesmer, who was big in hypnosis and uh, all these sorts of things. 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a, a kind of a staunch believer in the ability for people to access this other type of world. And it's interesting that there was a resurgence in the beliefs in the sort of spiritual or non-material world or numinous world as the industrial revolution is really just dominating uh, global politics and economics is fascinating. And there was a kind of rivalry between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini, was who was one of the main antagonists of this whole craze. But you can read a lot of you can find in a lot of books at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century references to this cultural fad of spiritualism. It's certainly something that Blackwood is tapping into that has market potential, no doubt about it. Well, and Blackwood himself, I mean, certainly seems to be very interested in it. And even though I just said, I don't know what materials we have from Blackwood, we actually, I do know that we have some letters, we have some diaries and stuff from Blackwood where he talks about his own journey into this realm, his own experiments with drugs. He was doing a lot of drug experimentation, but as a means of accessing other levels of reality, right? So even though he's he's engaged in this too, or at least something that maybe from a distance looks like the same thing, I think that he disagrees with Doyle's entire methodology for that and the things that he actually believes, that Doyle is really actually more of a superstitious person. And Blackwood is more of a rational person who thinks that it, we're really just dif- looking. It's that when we're talking about is really just different layers of reality that we simply don't have the tools to to with which to perceive that. But we can get those tools. We can figure out what those tools are. They might be cannabis. They might be some machine that activates your pineal gland. Right. We'll be talking about that shortly. But that there's a whole methodology there and a whole cosmology there that I think they are on other sides of. And this feels, I mean, not like a gauntlet, but like a very soft glove, you know, thrown thrown down. Yeah, a lambskin glove or a, a kid glove, a you kid, might yes, say. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I want to point out here is that John Silence's mode of dispatching ghosts or his method is, is so different from Hodgson's in uh, Karnacki's, you know, adventures. Uh, Karnacki thinks that there is some rational scientific process that you can engage with, though they're both also working with vibrations and energy, uh, though with Hodgson, we're dealing with early experiments with electricity. With John Silence, we're dealing with new conversations in physics and the makeup of reality. Um, So I just would love to catch your thoughts on why John Silence maybe doesn't use this rational scientific method, why he's more open to the experience and adapting to it rather than having built a uh, like a ghost catcher or something like that. Yeah, this is something that really jumped out to me while reading this story, and especially because it felt to me to recap it. And one of the things that I really love about doing the recap is that it forces you to think about the choices, to engage with the choices that the actual writer of the story we're discussing has made in telling the story, right? How, would, how am I going to summarize what this writer has written? What details am I leaving out? And why do I think they're less important, less significant than others? What what are the things that seem really significant to me? And I found it was really difficult to recap the action of this story. I mean, and we did breeze through 15 pages of 
action very quickly, right? We spent, uh, I mean, it was like inverted how much time we spent on the first two pages versus the 15 pages that are actually, you know, the the, the plot of the, the story. Because it is all this thick description of, of a battle of of wills, right? And the resolution of the story is all internally driven. It's all about his righteousness, about something about his disposition, his goodwill in the world. It is not external, right? And what I was thinking about specifically while reading this or doing the recap was I just this this vein of urban fantasy this mechanism for fighting ghosts is this is never going to make it on screen because there's nothing to show right the the winchester brothers are not kicking down a door and uh i don't know showing their recent charitable donations it's a like defeat a ghost right no they're stuffing a shotgun full of salt pellets that's uh, you know that's what they're doing right that, that there's a real physicality to to the climax in that strand which is that's the Carnegie strand that's the hodson strand that certainly appeals more or translates better to to the screen but i think that's the strand that's been picked up on you know kind of not even just on screen but on page as well in contemporary ghost hunting stories but for me where i was seeing parallels to this was the lord of the rings this is how frodo fights the ring this is how frodo fights the nazgul this is this is really something that gets picked up i think in a lot of religious fantasy and of course all of this has such religious uh, overtone not even overtones just explicit religious language here explicit christian language here for blackwood we're going to be talking about blackwood's relationship with christianity whether or not he has one whether he's being critical of it or how he's developing John Silence as a kind of moral beacon and what apparatus a person might need for that. So I don't want I don't want to I don't want to pick up where where you just left off right there because that's a big part of the sort of metaphysical and ethical questions that we're going to ask. I, I, it really struck me as well that John Silence's character is what makes him uniquely capable in this pursuit. Uh, his clairvoyance, his good nature, his charitability, um, also his wealth. We're not dealing with a, a kind of uh, post-depression era trope of somebody who has to do good and has to make a little money and is dealing with no money as a major internal conflict. Uh, that's kind of refreshing to see as well. We don't really see these aristocratic men of means being good anymore. I don't know if that's really ever been a part of American fiction, of American genre fiction. Um, and that really stood out to me here. Of course, it's more of the British tradition to think of aristocrats as being moral figures and characters. Um, but it, it really is the case in this story that John Silence is able to do what he does because he's good. He is innately good or has figured out a way to be good. Yet he has no real judgments on people's behaviors or what brings about a spiritual crisis or anything like that. He's almost a priest. Um, and that, to me, is such a big contrast to other examples of urban fantasy that we've seen in early, early urban fantasy, where it's somebody who's able to build something to do this, and their character is really different. Right. If I can actually borrow something from your typical wheelhouse here, right, and think about this in the tradition of chivalric literature, which, of course, detective fiction is solidly in the tradition of chivalric literature. But detective fiction, superhero fiction, which is really the big way where we see this before, but, you know, all these occult detectives as well and ghost hunting stories are showing us 
errant knights, wandering knights who are going around and fighting supernatural evil. But the way that we predominantly find that expressed for us now in our contemporary world, but I think also in you know the one Karnacki story that we've seen so far, emphasizes the warrior aspect of the Knights of the Round Table. But they are holy warriors, right? Those are people who are on a mystical quest for a mystical object, right? The Holy Grail, which is going to mystically heal the land, or at least, you know, those elements are in some of the stories, not necessarily all of them. But Algernon Blackwood here seems to have gone the other way, where he has, we're like these other traditions, he's he's separated the the holy part from the warrior part. But instead of taking the warrior part and leaving behind the holy part, he's kept the holy part and left behind the warrior part. So this warrior in this supernatural battle against the forces of evil is a a saint figure, a holy figure, not a fighter. Well, I think that's an excellent point and kind of sums up the main difference that we've seen between John Silence and and Karnacki so far. I want to move on now to the the weird fiction element of the story and look at the other story that we brought up a a handful of times in our recap, which is H.P. Lovecraft's story from Beyond. It's an episode we've uh, just released. So you can go back and listen to that if you want or read the story. It's pretty short, but it basically deals with a mad scientist. It's narrated by the scientist's friend who is concerned that his friend has gone mad and his friend has gone mad. And the mad scientist in the story, the the narrator's friend, is obsessed with vibrations and uh, ways to access the numinous world. And is almost doing something like a, like a grudge like or like something you'd find in in a horror movie like The Ring where he's like these things have found me maybe I can get somebody else uh <laughs> to be seen by these things and they'll chase that person down and I'll be free uh and this guy's absolutely mad and completely corrupted by this search but I think it's very very clear that this John Silence story influenced from beyond and I and I think it's worth discussing a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the parallels couldn't be clearer, right? This story is about a, a, a person who is suddenly able to experience a, a different layer of reality and is exposed to it and is in danger because of it. That's the plot of From Beyond as well. The Cats and dogs, big part of this story. Cats and dogs supply actually some of the, the imagery that Lovecraft uses and some of, some of the explanation that he uses in, in From Beyond. And there's a, a the real difference between those stories. I mean, there are other differences as well, right, is how do we gain access to that these other layers of reality? Here, it's this drug. For, for Lovecraft, it was a machine that was activating a, an, an organ, which is actually an interesting sort of two-step way to, to get there, that you, what you really need is not the machine. What you need is the organ, but you need the machine to get the organ going, which is not what's happening here, right? The cannabis is not activating an organ. Uh, it, is, it, it is the effect all on its own. And interestingly, the effect is permanent, which doesn't seem to have been the case for Lovecraft's machine, or it's permanent, you know, if you don't get Dr. Silence to come fix it for you. Yeah, I think part of the permanence of the effects of cannabis in this story on Felix Pender is not just that he experienced the typical effects of smoking a lot of weed. It's more that he opened himself up to something. His vibrations got to the point where he couldn't be restored to his normal vibration setting because of the evil dark woman and the dark power in the house. And so like that, there there is an interplay, I think, that causes the permanent ability here. But to me, what really jumps out, uh, you know, after just hearing what you said, is that, you know, this 
From Beyond is another example of somebody needing to build something to access this world. And it really contrasts with Algernon Blackwood's approach, which is this is already a part of the world. Um, there's nothing we can build to access it, but there's something we can there are things we can do to change our our spiritual states. We can tinker with that a little bit. And he's really just working with a completely different set of tools than than the people who came after him. Yes, absolutely. We keep saying marijuana, weed, cannabis, or drug, but we should be clear, we're talking about a plant, right? That we're actually talking about something that is part of creation. It's a natural element in the world. So right, it's already there. It's not something artificial that we need to use to to kind of master creation, right? That the tools are already here. Creation itself is uh, complete in in some in some way. And that that the ability to see these other layers is not a conquest of nature, but in fact, a harmonizing of nature. I had not thought about that. But this is actually something that is a huge part of, uh, of Algernon Blackwood's other works, the works that I really love, which are his wilderness horror stories. I mean, he does such great nature writing. I mean, he was a real early naturalist, a real early uh, environmentalist, and actually was a great influence on Tolkien. Uh, in those ways as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, to getting to those stories and doing more with that. I had not noticed that element here, but yeah, it's so clear now that you've pointed it out. And there's some other real stark contrast between this story, Psychical Invasion, and From Beyond as well, right? Lovecraft's story is cosmic horror. This story is not. But for Lovecraft, the idea that there are these other layers of reality that are populated by not the ghosts of human beings, but by other types of creatures that are alien to us, not necessarily space aliens, but, you know, just alien, just different from from us, different from anything that we normally experience, is terrifying because of what it reveals about the cosmos. But that is not here in this story. In this story, that is also regarded as a natural part of things, as part of the natural order what has gone wrong here is simply the barrier between the two. The fact that the other world exists is not leading, it's not making anyone mad. It's not leading to evil or to, to villainy here for, for anybody. This is what the world is. The world is like this. It's simply it's not, it's simply something that we don't necessarily notice, but the fact that it exists like that is not in itself abhorrent or terrifying or horrific. Right. It's almost as though it's an accident that Felix Pender has become a victim of clairvoyance because that ability to see beyond the normal scope of things, that's the opening up of the vibrational patterns or whatever's going on here, uh, you almost get the sense in reading this story that it wasn't taking the drugs or opening himself up to the experience that was the problem for Pender. The real problem was what was there in the house, what was in the environment that he experienced as a result. And so we're dealing with a place that is corrupt, not a man who is corrupt. And I wonder, I wonder, you know, you mentioned in the recap episode about the fog, which you said was actually smog from the Industrial Revolution. And I wonder if this sort of corruption of place is on Blackwood's mind here rather than Lovecraft thinking just everything is corrupt. The universe is corrupt and we are, it's good that we are hidden from the true nature of the world. There's another element of this as well, right? Where one of the important details about this house is that, yes, here in 1908, it is solidly in the city of London. It's, you know, the Southwest, uh, the Southwest part of London, South of the Thames. But in 1798, and even 
even really only 40 years ago or so, it was not in the city of London, right? That the city, because of the Industrial Revolution, has grown in population, also because of imperialism, has has magnified greatly in population. And so areas that were countryside, areas that were rural, have now become urbanized and have, you know, part of the road system, have been connected with the, the public transit system and, and so on. And that's given almost as a kind of lament when we get this here. And so there maybe is some sense about that if we are looking at something that has subverted the natural order of things, it's urban sprawl that has done that. And that some of the mood of this story is is about the urban sprawl. I don't see that as a major theme. Uh, it might not even be a minor theme, but it's there as a, a sort of hint, at least. Yeah, I think it's definitely in the background of the story or kind of the unthought context of what Blackwood is writing about here, it definitely seems to be the case that, you know, Pender, if he had gone somewhere that didn't have such an evil history, might not have experienced this and might have had uh, not been a victim of clairvoyance, but a sort of uh, new clairvoyant that would improve his life in some way. And so, yes, it's not textually the case or even thematically the case that corruption of place is. A theme is what Blackwood is focusing on. It's just something that I feel like is on his mind here. It is interesting to think of that in terms of protagonists and secondary characters in a story, especially when we're thinking about From Beyond, where Lovecraft's people are all innately corruptible. What they have in them is the ability to be corrupted by the true nature of reality, Whereas, as we see in this story, I don't want to get into the metaphysical conversation yet, uh, but that people are good, the power is the same, uh, but how it responds to them, how that, where they interact with it and how is what causes the sort of differences in their being as a result of having access to the other realm. Well, those are the kind of big, major, you know, writing story elements of it. I kind of want to move into the craft uh, section of this. There, there are a few quibbles that I have with the craft of this story, uh, and a few things that I just want to bring up as as food for thought. The first, to me, the first thing that really jumps out to me in this story is uh, the pets showing up in Act Two with like no foreshadowing, nothing is going on here. How did this come about in your mind? What is Blackwood doing with the pets? And why didn't he just have a dog in the office in the first scene? Come on, this like bothers me so much. I can't even tell you. Yeah, because this is just a complete shock. I mean, it's this. I did a spit take when it turned out that this was going to be a story about a cat and a dog fighting a, a ghost in Edwardian London. I mean, I knew there was a ghost and I knew it was Edwardian London, but I just was not prepped for that at all. And I'm 20 pages into this story. I'm loving this story so far. I'm hooked on the mystery. I'm curious. I'm really excited to find out how it's going to get resolved. And then all of a sudden, it's cute animals. I do not dislike cute animals. I own cute animals, right? And I love them. But uh, And I don't even end up disliking that part of the story at all. But I have to go reread the first five pages because my tongue is just on the floor. My jaw is on the floor because I'm just taken aback. I'm t so surprised by it. But you're right. It could totally have been foreshadowed. That could have been made not totally clear, but we could have at least seen the animals coming by, yes, having him 
have a dog in his office in the opening scene to travel to the house with a dog maybe in the first place. Uh, we could get a line about the dog maybe noticing something or you know something something like that. And then I would have been totally on board. Not that I wasn't totally on board by the end of the story anyway, but then I would not have been so surprised by the addition of you know bringing the cat when you're going to stay over and that explanation. But we just don't see him. I, I guess part of it, I guess maybe what you're really what we're really getting at here is that for this story to work, we have to believe that John Silence is a man who loves animals and who is surrounded by animals. And we're told that he has lots of dogs and cats he could have chosen, and other types of animals as well. He could have chosen to come with him that he does clearly bring with him on other adventures. He chose these two because they're uniquely suited for this particular adventure. But there's no hint of that. We don't see that as part of his character when we are getting the part that is all about his character that needed to be in there. Yeah, it's a major oversight. And I also thought this story was a lot of fun. I'm not at all critiquing the direction that he took the story in. It's an oversight of craft. It's one sentence of uh, dialogue or description early in the story just to set it up for us. Um, but you also think the the pets and John Silence's relationship with pets really highlight a connection between John Silence and St. Francis of Assisi. And, and and why do you think that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's maybe where that idea even even generated. I mean, given that this is the first the first story. So St. Francis of Assisi is, well, he's from Assisi, is a town in, in, in northern Italy, uh, 12th century uh, young man, uh, son of a fairly wealthy banker in, in Italy, uh, is going to in, inherit that business, right? And he's, he's supposed to be spending his youth training to to do that business, but does not want to do this. What he wants to do is uh, pray, and he wants to be like Christ. He wants to go out into the world and minister to the less fortunate, and he just starts to do this. Uh, he you know has an allowance, he has access to his father's funds, and he uses all the money that he can get his hands on to buy food for poor people and to, to bring medicine to them, to establish actually a kind of makeshift um, hospital, or maybe we might more accurately call it kind of a, a hostel, a kind of homeless shelter for them, which, you know, infuriates his father, says that's not what our family money is for. And and it actually was money that was for like a real business transaction and so on. So there's some real drama here in the story of St. Francis. And we see all of that attitude, all of that right at the beginning of this story. But St. Francis is also known for, famous for loving animals, for having animals be around him all the time, for being able to communicate to, with, with, with animals, having birds on him, being followed around by all sorts of animals. And, you know, when you go someplace that has a statue of St. Francis, which, you know, San Francisco might be a place, a Franciscan hospital might be a place where you'll see a statue or a painting or really maybe just any any Catholic church as well. He's always going to have animals around him, right? I, I was joking, actually, when we did Goddess of Death, how do you recognize a figure in art? It's by the accoutrements. That's how you know it's St. Francis and not some other saint is he's got animals around him, right? So I don't think this is coincidental at all. He is St. Francis here in Edwardian England. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and I can't wait to discuss what Blackwood is doing, not just with this imagery, but how he's trying to uh, maybe suggest uh, a sort of way of being that is uh, Franciscan in nature. Uh, there's a few other things I want to discuss uh, just about the the story itself and the craft. Uh, we have to talk about the narrator's intrusion in this one moment and what exactly Blackwood has in mind 
when he's doing this. And and after that, uh, maybe a surprising question about uh, why the structure of this story works where in uh, another story we just covered, the structure didn't, just to highlight some craft. This intrusion from the narrator just boggles my mind. It doesn't bother me. I mean, it's not, it's really very, intrusion is probably not even the right word. It's like one sentence in here, but it doesn't serve any purpose. But because it's there at the beginning and never comes back again, it feels like this unresolved threat that's just left dangling at, at the end where, where in Holmes, right, when Watson is serving as the narrator for these stories, he's also there in the action. And it's very clear that these Holmes stories are first person narratives, even when we're not actually getting Watson's first person voice in the story that's just built into uh, the the structure into the archetype of the story itself and it seems like blackwood is borrowing that idea but then not really doing anything with it and 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 i guess the only thing i can think of is that he intends later for that character to show up and be more significant i mean these were published together as a short story collection they weren't published in magazines so he may have begun with the end in mind it's also totally possible that's a line he went back and inserted later after in some other story maybe the third or the fourth of these he decided that silence needs a sidekick who's actually going to be the person who's writing these stories and he has to go back and put that into all the other stories we're going to do more of these so we'll we'll find out if that's true and i have to assume that that, that person is this secretary he's dispatched to to go look at the property records, right? I did not read it that way. I thought he had uh, another secretary to go and look at the property records because you don't get the v- narrative voice returning of, uh, while he was doing this, he wrote me and I went and investigated the property records and had them ready for him when he returned. So it's not clear to me that that this narrator is the secretary. They seem more like a, a sort of confidant to me uh, because we also get at the end of the story this sense that it was hard for Dr. Silence to tell me everything that happened in the uh, cat and dog ghost battle because it was so disorienting and the room was crazy. So he didn't remember the order uh, and I'm putting it together in the best way possible. And, and And I agree with you here that Blackwood is writing something that is meant to compete with Sherlock Holmes. So he's he's really, in a sense, trying to create a new iconic detective, and that is no small that is no small feat in in the world of in the world where Sherlock Holmes is just a massive bestseller. But this became a very popular and profitable series of stories for Algernon Blackwood. The public was hungry for more sort of iconic detective stories, and he tapped into it at the right time. Well, the last question I want to ask here about writing and craft here is that this story's structure is actually really similar to the structure of the goddess of death that we just covered. And and you and I both had significant problems with the way that that story was structured uh, in terms of introduction of the problem, then the action, then the resolution of the mystery where, you know, that's the inversion of the act structure, really, between Acts 2 and 3. This story did something similar. Why did it work for this story? And we know we talked about it in our episode of Goddess of Death, why it didn't work. But it actually works in this story. For me, this inversion of the story structure really works because this story isn't structured actually like a mystery. It's relying on the tropes of detective fiction and chivalric romance but it's actually about a man's character and his good actions in the world. And so we don't actually even need to know the mysterious resolution. We don't need the epilogue of this story at all. All the epilogue really tells us is that 
John Silence is still a good man. He's going to continue to look after these people that he's helped. And this kind of reminded me a little bit of, you know, how the character of the shadow functions in the world of noir superheroes and detectives, which is that they're so good. They help people so much that they end up with this sort of circle of people who are willing to help and protect them if they need it. And that's obviously stolen from the Baker Street irregular idea and things like that. (laughs) Um, And so Blackwood is engaging with all of this stuff that's part of a detective trope, detective fiction trope, but what he's really doing is giving us a character study in a way. It really feels more of a character study than a mystery story, and that's a a fascinating approach to this type of fiction to me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that whereas The Goddess of Death was clearly modeled on a a mystery story, but also an adventure story at the same time, and maybe had that modeled up a, a little bit, but was clearly working with a sort of three-act structure there. This story is is not. This is not, even though it is it is explicitly a detective story, it is not told like a detective story. The form of this story is not a detective story. The form of this story is a hagiography. This story is the biography of a saint, right? This is the sort of thing about how we know about Francis of Assisi as we have a saint's life about him written by people who knew him. In fact, we get very similar narrative intrusions actually from the from the authors. And I hadn't thought about that before, but that actually really is the genre that this story is written in. This is uh, a medieval hagiography here where the first part tells us about the the background and qualities the the characteristics of the person and then we get examples of miracles that a person is working and frequently not always but frequently one of those miracles is tangling with some supernatural force the devil like satan explicitly or a demon of some sort and that's what we have here and that's why this is satisfying is that this is uh, uh this is a hagiography and it fits that form precisely. And so it's not breaking any of our expectations, breaking any of our molds by doing that. The explanation for why there's a supernatural force in the world to begin with doesn't matter. That's not something that matters for the hagiography. And that's why this coda we get is just that. It's a coda that we almost don't even need. I could have closed the story at the end of section two and never gotten those last two pages and I would have felt fine with it. Yeah, it's great. I I really love what Blackwood has done here with this first John Silence story. But let's move in now to, you know, metaphysics and ethics. We don't have a lot of questions. I maybe have more talking points than, uh, than questions here. And I I want, actually want to start off this portion of the discussion by reading a quote from the story. And, and I want us to keep this in mind as we examine just what the metaphysics of this world are. And how that impacts John Silence's ethical considerations. So this quote is from the first page of the story where John Silence is trying to understand what the Swedish woman is getting at in bringing him the case. Because she's very bad at using his language and his understanding to communicate what she believes the problem is. Uh, Blackwood writes this of John Silence. He closed his eyes as he always did when he wished to absorb the real meaning of a recital that might be inadequately expressed. For by this method, he found it easier to set himself in tune with the living thoughts that lay behind the broken words. And I think that just this expression of uh, the barriers of language, uh, the way communication sort of breaks down, the sort of translation he's going through comes back a lot in the story as we look at the way he engages with the supernatural world. The sentence really jumped out to me because it's so oddly philosophical, but 
really, I think the general ideas behind it are key to cracking a lot of how John Silence, as I said, approaches his role in the world. And at the very least, it's just a really good bit of characterization. So with that in mind, let's just go right to the metaphysics of the story. We'll start off real easy and go from there. I want to ask you, Glenn, just in general, what clairvoyance is to John Silence. I think we've touched on this, but this is just a brief reminder as we kind of get into some of these thorny patches. Right. It seems to me that that, that clairvoyance is, for him, simply having access to a, a, a layer, a type, an aspect of reality that most people do not, right? That... Uh, but that the the reality that you're accessing is not abnormal or abhorrent in some way. It's simply a part of existence, a part of the cosmos that we don't have the organs uh, to to experience normally, but that there are ways that some people can be more sensitive, more attuned to that. And he shows us this by giving us the cats and the dogs and explaining that they have different ways of experiencing these elements of reality than humans do. And he talks about some other animals in, in there as as well. And presumably other types of creatures might have this this also. Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to ask you next how his clairvoyance, how his access to this other reality, his experience of that has changed his views of things like the afterlife and the spiritual realities that people participate in. You know, for instance, uh, Dr. Silence talks about there being a mental, a physical, and spiritual properties to a person in the world. And Silence, as a doctor, has really taken up diagnosing and curing the negative manifestations of spiritual properties. So I guess what I'm really asking here is his being open to this new reality has allowed him to access these spiritual properties. And how do you think that's impacted him? And how do you think Blackwood wants us to take this aspect of spiritual properties in this story? I think the thing that jumps out to me the most about this in this story is actually in the coda. And so maybe in that sense, it's an important part of this story. And this is this is where he's he's talking to Pender about how he, Silence, knows that there is this region in the cosmos where float the waste and drift of all the centuries, the limbo of the shells of the dead, a densely populated region crammed with horror and abomination of all descriptions, and sometimes galvanized into active life again by the will of a trained manipulator. Uh, that he's describing here hell, that hell is a real place. He knows this because of his experiences. And this is where earlier he's Chastising probably isn't the right verb, but he is noticing that Pender is a nominal Christian, and so he's heard some things about how you should be a good person in the world, but does not take to heart all of the cosmology of Christianity. But silence knows that there's some truth to that, that there are other aspects of reality, and one of them is hell. I mean, in you know, in the parlance of the Buffyverse, hell dimensions are real, and he knows it. I think that's the best way to put it is kind of in this term of hell dimensions, because it's not clear to me that silence himself is a Christian or has any real patience for cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity, um, or even goes deeper and says that 
there's one theological reality. And so I think we see in the story that Silence's understanding of this universe, his expanded understanding of the universe, has a real impact on his ethics and moral behavior. Uh, you just pointed out that he takes up this critique of nominal Christianity and nominal Christians. This is right out of Kierkegaard. Though Kierkegaard can be read as an explicit uh, Christian writer, uh, philosopher of theology and things like that, his the impacts of his philosophy have gone far beyond that. And I think many readers of Kierkegaard, whether they're right or wrong, whether that makes them good or bad readers, often look past Kierkegaard's Christianity to find other uh, things in his philosophy. I think Blackwood is certainly on that path as a man as he's writing these stories. But what silence is basically saying is that people's metaphysics and the way that impacts their ethical systems actually stop them from seeing fully and engaging rightly with the world. And and this is really similar to the way that silence is critical of other systems of thought that are limiting that are related to the spiritual practices of div- divination and geomancy. And there's actually a line in the story where Silence says, you have to learn how to think. And then once you do that, this will all be open to you. And to me, that reads as if these systems are obstructions to thought. Uh, I don't know if pure thought is really a thing. I don't even want to use that phrase and get into it. Um, (laughs) But that there is a way of thinking where these limitations break away. He thinks there's a lot of charlatans out there who are abusing these methods and are reducing them to systems. His own method or system, if he has one, which he doesn't, is rooted in just being a patient, non-judgmental, charitable, generous, but firmly moral man. So do you think that John Science's ethics are, are a result of his metaphysics, or is there another uh, route to his ethical system? And do you think that Blackwood is engaging in an eth- ethical commentary here on how people form their moral lives and and trying to use John Silence as an example or a beacon of something else? Man, the first part of that question is the exact plot of Silence Begins, which I am going to start working on, right? The question of how does he become the person he is? Which comes first, the the moral qualities or his knowledge of the the world, his knowledge of, of what the cosmos is really like. But I think that what we're told here, or at least what's alluded to here, what, what we can infer is that he always was this moral upright person, right? He's this this man with some inherited wealth. We don't know, you know, how it's inherited and what way it's inherited, but he has this inherited wealth and he uses that wealth to be able to be, you know, be free of labor, to not have uh, obligations uh, to some kind of employer or even managing a business or something like that in order to survive. And he is able to go off, disappear for five years and train to do this, right? That this seems to be a mission for him, that he has to go out and get the training to, in order to access this reality, in order to be able to be the occult detective. But getting the training, deciding to get the training, maybe is what I'm trying to say, is step one. And the reason he decides to do that is because he is this moral person. That's my sense of it anyway. I, I, do you see something different there? No, I think that's totally fair. I mean, we're not dealing with uh, you know a shooting outside of a theater here in this right. story. Um, and, and I think you're right to point to the structure of this story as a hagiography. You know, hag- hagiographies often don't start with 
a moral corruption being corrected, a moral flaw in the character. It's they often are meant to show that this character always had this moral quality and that they followed it to its right end. Um, my real question here is whether or not you think this is Blackwood endorsing Christianity. If John Silence is at all engaged with Christianity in a meaningful sense or any sort of theological discussion in this story. So I don't see Blackwood endorsing Christianity here in any real specific way. And I I do actually think that he means this critique, this kind of dressing down that he gives of nominal Christians here. But I don't think that he's necessarily advocating for Christianity in any specific way, because, because despite that, he avoids talking about any of the real metaphysics here in Christian terms, and in some ways kind of goes out of his way to avoid doing that. He doesn't use the word hell. I've used the word hell, right? We know from other stories, and we know from other writings of Algernon Blackwood that although, you know, like most Englishmen of the time, he did grow up in the Church of England, grew up as a Christian, but he himself traveled for a while. I mean, there is some autobiography, I think, going on here in the character of of John Silence. He traveled for a while. He went to India, and he got very interested in other religions and Eastern religions. And I think that he ended life as a kind of Buddhist of of some sort, though I know less about that than I, I would like to. So I think even at this phase of his writing career, I don't think he would have considered himself to be a Christian, but that what he is advocating for is a type of genuine spiritualism, not the charlatan type of spiritualism that Doyle is involved with, uh, you know, in, in the kind of pop culture, but a genuine spiritualism. And if anything about specific religious views, I, I suspect Blackwood probably would be something of of a, of a pantheist, someone who sees all religions as having maybe some aspect of the the truth as being a, a path as a means of discovering what the cosmos really is. But they don't. But that none of them has kind of the complete picture, and it's a it's a that religion is a journey, not an not an end, something along those lines. And of course, we could probably find this out. But that's my sense of it here in this story. I, I don't know. Did you see him endorsing Christianity here? I don't, and I just want to say that we see what you just talked about in terms of there being a broader reality than any one system can contain. Really, in two uh, points of the story, the the first one I think is in that small. Uh, couple of sentences that I quoted where he thinks there's something beyond language, that that language itself is a broken way to talk about these sorts of things. And I think that's why Blackwood has silence refrained from using any typical religious language or any language with religious baggage, even the word occult, because I think he's through John Silence, trying to find a new type of language that that isn't broken in a way that stops people from trying to go beyond it, uh, and I and I just think that that is a kind of a beautifully summarized, very difficult philosophical concept that you know Wittgenstein kind of picks up <laughs> you know, fifty years later, uh, and I also think that um, we see an example of him being more of a pantheist here in the way he thinks about uh, the supernatural powers or power in general, that it's not whether or not the powers we can access in the world, spiritual powers, if they exist, are good or bad. It's that people wield them in ways that corrupt or ennoble them. 
and I see John Silence as being Blackwood's uh, beacon of using power to ennoble others and in do- doing so ennoble himself. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key features of hagiographies is that they're meant to be models for how we as regular people should try to live our lives. We'll never make it. We'll never quite live up to the example of of even the, the most minor of saints, but we need to try, right? It's the trying that is the thing that's important. I think that's how this story functions too. I think that Algernon Blackwood is, you know, sent this out into the 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 presses of of Edwardian England and is hoping readers will read this and, you know, be entertained by it, but we'll see John Silence as someone worthy of emulation and the world can be a slightly better place as a result of that i think that there is a real mission to this story well i hope to see more of that and and in which way algernon blackwood develops john silence and whether he continues to be a saint or has struggles and stumbles uh and whether he gets into the more brass tacks of detective writing or continues along (laughs) this sort of path of hagiography i cannot wait to cover more of these stories but that's going to do it for this episode I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of our discussion of a psychical invasion. I'm sure that there's a lot that we didn't cover that you're interested in this story. So just come and talk to us about it on the forums. There's a lot we probably didn't discuss. So love to hear from you. Please join us. And if you'd like to support the show and help us reach those goals that we talked about at the top of the show, if you'd like us to do a series on The Island of Dr. Moreau or Alan Moore's Swamp Thing or G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. I mean, we are really excited about these new goals, and we really hope that you are, too. Next time, we will be back with our very first Stephen King story. I'm excited, interested, really eager to do this one. It's the story Graveyard Shift. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>